Welcome to the Trinity Forum Conversations podcast. In this series, we focused on navigating the challenges of modernity, and our recent event with David Brooks fits squarely into that theme. Drawing on research from his latest book, David spoke with Trinity Forum President Cherie Harder about how we can become the kinds of people who deeply see and know those around us. And you've got to know that the person in front of you is not a problem to be solved, but a, a wonder that will never be gotten to the bottom of. And in that first act of meeting someone, everyone, when we meet someone, we're unconsciously asking ourselves a question. Am I a person to that person? Am I a priority to that person? And the answers to those questions will be expressed in, the, in people's gaze before they're expressed in words. This episode is an edited version of our online conversation from October of this year. You can find the full video of that event, as well as our full catalog of event videos at our website, ttf.org. And check out the show notes on this episode for links to further resources. Here's Cherie Harder. In a new book, our guest today makes the case that one of the greatest human needs is to be paid loving attention, to be known and understood, and that learning to see others calls forth and develops the best in both the subject and the beholder. The problem is we're terrible at it. On the whole, whether due to distraction or ego or overwhelm or ignorance, we either do not look, do not listen, do not care, or do not understand. And the cost is tremendous in terms of sad and lonely adults, socially and morally confused young people, and an increasingly mean and fractured society. So how might we become more attuned to others, more interested and skilled at seeing and understanding them? If, to paraphrase the poet Mary Oliver, attention is the beginning of love, how might we learn to better love our neighbors? It's one of life's both enduring and urgent questions. And so I'm so delighted to get to introduce our guest today who has wrestled with it with remarkable wisdom, humility, clarity, and charity, David Brooks. David is one of the nation's leading writers and commentators who's an op-ed columnist for the New York Times, a writer for The Atlantic, and appears regularly on PBS NewsHour. He's also the author of a number of best-selling books, including several number one bestsellers on the New York Times uh, list, including Bobo's in Paradise, On Paradise Drive, The Social Animal, The Road to Character, The Second Mountain, and his wonderful new release just out earlier this week, How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen, which we've invited him here today to discuss. David, welcome. Good to be with you, Sharia. I want to just ask you, like, what led you to write this book? It's sort of unusual that a columnist who is you're generally used to scanning the landscape for cultural trends turns his attention uh, from the broad landscape into the eyes of another person. So what made you decide to shift your gaze from the populace to the personal? Well, first, I'm surrounded by, like we all are, by a, sort of a rising tide of barbarism and a rising tide of dehumanization. And so we all know the statistics, the rising depression, rising suicide, rising loneliness, rising bitterness, rising meanness. And 
it occurred to me first, I'm not exactly helping the situation. <laughs> You've known me for a lot of years, and I'm not naturally the most socially adept human being on the face of the earth. And so I just wanted to get, get better. Uh, Frederick Buechner, a hero of mine and many of ours, he was shut down emotionally for the first part of his life. And he, he said, in the middle of life, I learned that I, feel, I seal myself off from the pain of living and from the emotions of living. I'm sealing myself off from the holy sources of life itself. And I didn't want that to be me. And so I realized along the way that to see others well, you have to be open-hearted. You have to open up your heart to other people. But that's not enough. You need skills. And so you need the skill of really listening well, being a great conversationalist, disagreeing well, sensing anxiety somebody, in somebody's voice and asking them about it, hosting so that everybody feels included. And so over the course of the four years I wrote the book, I wanted to be more open-hearted and just a more emotionally available person. I wanted to know more about human nature so I would know what I'm looking at. But really, I just wanted to learn the skills, how to be concretely considerate in daily circumstances of life. Yeah. You know, you um, you describe just paying attention, which seems like such a simple act, is actually a really profound moral and creative act. And, you know, even just uh, our, our last online conversation, we hosted Kurt Thompson. And one of the things Kurt has said, I know you know, Kurt, is that really the paying attention to what we pay attention to is usually the start of the spiritual disciplines too, that yeah, there's something that sure. really affects us in terms of the decisions about where we pay attention. So what, given all your research, do you find, well, why is it that that simple act of paying attention to others is so, is so powerful? What is it about that that kind of brings forth change in in us as well as as others. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you a story to illustrate how powerful attention is. So I'm I'm in Waco, Texas, and I'm having breakfast with a woman, a 93-year-old woman named LaRue Dorsey. And she presents herself to me as this tough, intimidating woman who was a teacher most of her career. And she said, I love my students enough to discipline them. And I was a little intimidated by her. And into the diner walks a mutual friend of ours named Jimmy Durrell. And Jimmy is a pastor. He pastors a church under the bridge, uh, which is for homeless people. And he comes up to our table and he grabs Mrs. Dorsey by the shoulders and shakes her way harder than you should shake a 93-year-old. And he says to her, Mrs. Dorsey, Mrs. Dorsey, you're the best. You're the best. I love you. I love you. And that tough, intimidating drill sergeant suddenly turned into a bright, eye-shining nine-year-old girl. And so the attention you cast on a person changes who they will be and who they will become. And so why that's important to me is not only that Jimmy's a warmer personality than I am, but Jimmy is a pastor. And so he sees anybody, anybody, he's seeing someone made in the image of God. He's looking into the face of God. He's looking at a person who has a soul of infinite value and dignity, a soul so important that Jesus was willing to die for that person. And so I tell people, you can be Christian, Jewish, Muslim, atheist, agnostic, but approaching people with that level of reverence and respect is an absolute precondition for knowing them well. And you've got to know that the person in front of you is not a problem to be solved, but a, a wonder that will never be gotten to the bottom of. And in that first act of meeting someone, everyone, when we meet someone, we're unconsciously asking ourselves a question. Am I a person to that person? Am I a priority to those, that person? And the answers to those questions will be expressed in, the, in people's gaze before they're expressed in words. So that first act of attention, as Iris Murdoch says, we want to cast a just and loving attention on others. And I can't do a whole Trinity Forum event without citing the chosen. 
But if you look at that show, the way Jesus looks at everybody else in that show is actually masterfully done because we want to look at other people with those eyes. You know, I think, well, both of us, probably all of us have had some kind of story where someone saw something in us and kind of by, you know, through that attention, but also by naming it kind of helped call it forth. But you have said that the act of actually seeing each other with love and um, just and loving attention affects not only those who we behold, but also affects mm. the beholder. Uh, yeah. I'd love for you to say a little bit more about what that means. How yeah. uh, How is it that there's <laughs> uh, there's truth, goodness, and beauty in the eye of the beholder? Right. Yeah. So it's when I ask people, tell me about a time you've been seen. They tell me shot with bright eyes and joy in their face. They tell me about time somebody totally got them. Because seeing someone, if if I see potential in you, you in you, you'll see potential in yourself. If I beam my attention on you, you'll blossom. And so it's just super powerful to feel seen. But it's also powerful and fantastic to feel like you're the seer, like you look at another person. And so I'm sitting here right in my living room. And about two years ago, or I guess about two years ago, uh, I was sitting at across the table from where the laptop is. And I was reading a boring book, which is what I get paid to do. Uh, and my wife, Ann Snyder, senior fellow at the Trinity Forum and editor of Comment Magazine, uh, walks in the door, which is that right over there. And she, the door is open and she opens the door and she's standing there in the doorway. And it's summertime and the sun is coming in behind her. And I look up from my book and she doesn't even notice that I'm there because that's the kind of charisma I have. Uh, and and, she, and she's looking at an orchid that we keep on a table by the door. And I look at her and I have this sensation come across my mind, which was, I know her. I know her through and through. And if you had asked me what I knew about her at that moment, it's not like her personality traits or, or any adjectives I would use to describe her to a person. It was like the harmonies of her music, the ebb and flow of her being, sort of the incandescence of her personality, the occasional fierceness, the occasional insecurities. It was as if I was almost not seeing her, but I was seeing out from her. And if you really want to understand other people, you have to see the world a little from their point of view. And it was that just a moment of human contact. And it just felt delicious. Like, I know her, I know her. And if you had asked me what word I would use to describe how I was seeing her at that moment, the word I would use is behold. I wasn't inspecting her. I wasn't observing her from detached perspective. I was just beholding her. And it, it was like a, just wonder at this other human being. And I mentioned this story about a year later to a an older couple. And they said, that's what we do with our grandkids. We just behold them. And it's just an appreciative way of welcoming somebody's whole presence into your life and into your mind. And it was so much fun. I, I remember it vividly to this day. Yeah. Well, incandescent is a good adjective for Anne, but you know, in, in some ways as well, it's a wonderful story and as joyful and delightful as it is to behold people, it seems, well, at least you tell us, we're awfully bad at doing it. And it really, it was kind of remarkable. You mentioned different studies. I'm going to cite some of these that strangers accurately read each other only around 20% of the time, close friends and family only around 30 to 35% of the time. And moreover, the people who are just absolutely awful at it think that they are as good as the people who are actually more skilled. Why are we so bad at beholding when it is so generative and joy-giving. Yeah. Well, first, we're, we're we're egotistical, so we're 
busy not think we're busy thinking about ourselves so we don't think about other people second some of us have so much anxiety in our heads there's so much noise up there they don't have time for other people some people just can't appreciate that there other people have different viewpoints they think everybody sees the world the way they do and if they don't and if the other people don't there's something wrong with them there's a, a little story I tell about a guy who was on one side of the river and there was a woman on the other side of the river and she shouts at him, how do I get to the other side of the river? And he shouts back at her, you are on the other side of the river. And so he couldn't put herself at her viewpoint and see. And so that's part of it. Partly we're shy, you know, and we don't ask, we don't ask. And so I've, I have a, a friend of mine named Naomi Wei who teaches seventh grade boys how to do interviewing so they can become journalists, student journalists. And the first time she ever did this, she um, sat in the front of the room and she said, okay, you guys shoot some questions at me. I'll answer truthfully, whatever you ask. And so the first question from one boy was, are you married? And she said, no. Second question from another boy, are you divorced? Yes. Third question, do you still love him? And she's, her eyes go open wide. And then she says, yes. And they say, does he know? By now she's crying. Do your kids know? Like kids will ask the direct question. They will go right there. But then as we get older, we get a little shy, sometimes appropriately shy. But in my view, we're too shy. And so I've learned that the one of the qualities of your conversations will be the quality of your questions. And so when you're getting to know someone, I ask people where they're from. I love to get them talking about their childhood. They love, people love to talk about their childhood. And you learn so much about them just from, you know, what town was it in? What was your family like? And sometimes I'll ask, uh, like we have a mutual friend who I won't out him here, but I once asked him, what's your favorite unimportant thing about him, about you? What's your favorite unimportant thing about you? And he's a, a prestigious academic and the amount of reality trashy TV show that guy watches was crazy. Like, so I learned that by asking that. And then as you get to know people better, you can ask some questions that take them out of their daily existence and get them to think new about themselves. So if this chapter, if this five years is a chapter in your life, what's this chapter about? It gets people talking about what are the themes, what are their main life tasks, or what transition are you in the middle of? What crossroads are you at? We're usually in the thinking about some transition. And so you have, you ask a big question like that, you get big conversation and it makes it a meaningful conversation, whether it's just friends or colleagues. We have a mutual friend. I won't out them either, but I don't think they'd mind, but she says, our, our friends, we like friends who are lingerable. People you just want to linger with. And that's good company. And I, a lot of it comes from a, a, just a conversation that's going sensationally where you really are learning things about each other. Uh, one other topic that I used recently, and Anne thought it was a little pretentious, which it was, but I asked anyway, and it turned into a good conversation, which was, how do your ancestors show up in your life? And so there was a Dutch family there. They talked about their Dutch heritage. There was a black couple there. They talked about African-American heritage. I talked about my Jewish ancestry. And it, our lives are affected by things stretching back generations and the way we look at the world, our culture, our heritage. And so it's just fun to explore that topic. And so when you have a big conversation like that, you leave it feeling a little more seen. Yeah, I can imagine. I almost feel now like I need to ask you, like, what big transition you were in in the middle of your life? <laughs> you I'm don't have you, to I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> Becoming a Baha'i. No, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it, it was interesting that you, again, kind of give a stat. You're, you give lots of stats, but really that you estimate only around 30% of people are natural question askers. And we don't really get a lot of training in sort of how to do that. Uh, and you also called asking good questions a moral practice. Um, so 
How would you, if, if someone came to you, you'd be like, David, you do this for a living. You ask lots of interesting questions. I have no idea where to start. What would you tell them? How do you ask a morally formative question? Yeah, I mean, I, I do ask questions for a living, but we all have conversations for a living. And the sad thing is there's no place to go to get taught this stuff. And you don't have to ask, you know, one thing that makes us shy is we're the, under the illusion that people don't want to be asked. And there's in the book, I cite a guy named Dan McAdams, who studies how people tell their life stories. And he has people come into his research lab and he asks them, tell me about the high points of your life. Tell me about the low points of your life. Tell me about the turning points. And after a few hours, he hands them a little check to compensate them for their time. And they push the check back, some of them, and say, I'm not taking money for this. This has been one of the best afternoons of my life. And so I have found again and again, if you respectfully ask somebody to tell you their story, no one has ever asked them and they get such immense pleasure out of it. And they, they love to talk and it, it, it just makes you curious. And so it's not hard to get people going. Monica Guzman is a journalist and she has a question, why you? Like, why was it you who felt compelled to run for school board? Why was it you who decided to start that company? And then gets people talking about their desires, their motivations, the things they dream about. And that's not a hard question to ask. And so these are, and you know, relatively easy questions to get people going. And I, you know, I have a friend who hires people for a living and his, one of his questions is, who are you in high school and how has that changed? Because his theory is that whoever you were in high school, you're carrying a little of that, those insecurities around with you right now, your sense of where your social location, stuff like that. And so he's fantastic at hiring and he hires for what he calls spirit of generosity. And he says, you can tell someone's spirit of generosity when, as they talk about their childhood, who loved them, who did they love? And that's as part of a job hiring process is learning about skills. Mm -hmm. And when we have to let someone go from any employment, it's never because it's rarely 11% of the time, it's because they lack technical skills. 89% of the time, it's they weren't a team player. They weren't calm in a crisis. They weren't generous to colleagues. And if we're going to hire someone, marry someone, befriend someone, raise a kid, you just got to be a lot better at, at seeing them accurately. Your friend is probably someone that you would refer to in your book, at least as an illuminator. And you have sort of divided different approaches to uh, beholding people or paying attention is uh, between diminishers and illuminators. Uh, what's What are the different practices of diminishers and illuminators? And how can we tell if we're being a diminisher when we should aspire to be an illuminator. Yeah. Well, diminishers, first, they don't ask. So if you're not a question asker, you're probably a diminisher. Secondly, they stereotype. And so they have labels. And thirdly, they do a thing called stacking. And stacking is when if you learn one fact about a person, you make a whole series of assumptions that you think must also be true of that person. And so you learn somebody's a Trump supporter, then suddenly you've made all these stereotypical assumptions about that person. But those are almost never true. I, I heard about a Trump supporter who was a, a lesbian biker who converted to Sufi Islam after surviving a plane crash. Like, what stereotype does she fit into? And I find most people like that. They're just way more complicated than their stereotypes. And then illuminators make you feel lit up. I quote, E.M. Uh, Foster was an English novelist, lived about 100 years ago. And his biographer said he had a kind of inverse charisma. He listened to you with such intensity that you had to be your best, sharpest, and most practiced self. So that's just intense listening. I tell in the book the story, maybe apocryphal, of Jenny Jerome. And Jenny Jerome went to, was an, he, she later became Winston Churchill's mom. But when she was a young woman in Victorian England, 
she was once seated next to uh, William Gladstone, the prime minister, at a dinner. And she left that dinner thinking that Gladstone was the cleverest person in England. And then a couple of weeks later, she happens to be seated next to Benjamin Disraeli, Disraeli uh, Gladstone's great political rival. And she left that dinner with Disraeli thinking that she was the cleverest person in England. So if you can make somebody else feel like they're the cleverest person in the country, you've done your job. And another example of an illuminator is it occurred in Bell Labs, the legendary research facility. And so there's there was some researchers who were way more creative than others. And they wanted to know why. And they said, was it IQ? No. Was it educational attainment? No. They found out their most creative researchers were in the habit of having breakfast or lunch with an electrical engineer named Harry Nyquist. And Harry would ask them about their, their problems, get inside their head, sort of think along with them. And together, they thought through their problems and came to creative solutions. So Harry Nyquist was an illuminator. He got inside his colleagues' heads and just helped them think through their own problems and making everybody better. One of the things that you have mentioned in your book is that there's a problem not only with our personal a kind of sense of lacking illuminators, but uh, kind of on a population level, we're kind of a lacking illuminators as well. That, you know, there's study after study showing that Americans are lonelier, sadder, murder rates, gun sales, hate crimes are surging, social trust, charitable giving is, is declining. And you conclude that people are no longer trained in how to treat others with kindness. But in reading all of that, one of the things that occurred to me is how much of it is that we don't know how to treat others with kindness, yeah. as opposed to the we don't want to. You know, we yeah. have found benefits to trying to one up or dominate or even humiliate others, and it it's been working for us on an individual level, if, if even if not on a societal one. Yeah. Well, I don't think it has been working. I think the reason 36% of Americans feel persistently lonely is because we have, they haven't been trained. And if you don't know how to start a conversation, uh, you're not going to want to do it. You're not going to want to do something you think you're going to fail at. And so uh, I don't know whether it's the churches or the schools or wherever, just these basic skills, how to host a party effectively, uh, how to ask for forgiveness and offer forgiveness. These are just basic skills that somehow we're not teaching. And I, I do think it leads to the immiseration of lots and lots of people. Like one of the weird statistics is the number of people who say they have no close friends has gone up by four times in the last 20 years. Like what, what is going on with our country? And so one of the reasons I think it's skill-based is because people just don't know how to interact. But I just saw a study a couple of weeks ago. They looked at the number of men who have never asked a woman out on a date. And the number is super high, and they wanted to know what was the, why they hadn't asked the women out on a date. And it was low flirting skills. <laughs> and so we don't think of flirting as a skill you have to learn. But if you can't flirt, it's going to be hard to like approach a romantic love interest. Flirting is a thing. And so I, that's why I think teaching the skills is so important. And then more broadly, and I'll just speak personally, you know, as this wall of, of, depression, suicide, loneliness, anger, meanness has been rising. It can seem naive to be like me, to think, oh, we should all know each other. We should all understand each other. But in my view, I've decided to adopt this defiant humanism. <laughs> like in a world of loneliness and people are attacking, I'm going to be the one who's going to lead with respect. I'm going to lead with curiosity. And I'm going to argue that it's the most practical thing you can do is to try to open up your eyes and try to understand another human being and make them feel seen, heard, and understood. 
that is to me is the only way you're going to break down the cycle of misapprehension and hostility. And since we're on Trinity form, if I could be a little explicitly religious here, Jesus lived in a time of bitter hostility and revolution. And the model he accepts for us is of someone who, who looks at all this rising tide of hatred with the gentle eyes of love and looks at each person with the gentle eyes of love. Uh, and so we're sort of called to do that, to try to do this, and we're going to do it as well as Jesus did it, but we can do it a little. And when you go look in, in the Bible, especially after writing the book I've been writing, you realize how many dramas of recognition there are, how many times somebody was not recognized. And obviously the disciples don't recognize the risen Christ, Esau and Isaac and the birthright. And even in the, the Good Samaritan, the, a lot of people see the injured guy on the side of the road but only the Samaritan really sees him. And the Bible is always giving us these dramas where somebody didn't see well. And those failures, when people misunderstand someone, those are failures of the heart, not failures of the head. And so we're really given a lot of instruction in the Bible on, on how to see and the errors of misseeing. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, it, it's interesting in that, you know, loneliness obviously is very much on the rise. And, you know, you've pointed out that lonely people also often, not always, but often tend to be more aggressive and fearful. And the loneliness drives a lot of that, so, such that the people that we, that most need that kind of loving attention are probably the least likely to get it. But, you know, I think there's also a tension, which is, you know, on one hand, we're called, we are at Christians are called to love our enemies, not just, you know, merely our antagonist. Uh, but at the same time, there's also presumably a need for certain, certain boundaries around enemies and antagonists. And, you know, even as a, a colonist, you, I'm sure, have far more people who want or even demand your attention than you, than you can provide. How do you think about just the inevitable tension between the call to love our neighbor and our enemy and the reality of very finite attention as well as potential potential harm from some others. Yeah. yeah. Well, first on the, sometimes you're just overwhelmed. Like I, I'm thinking about, I'm, I'm about to go on a book tour. So I'm going to travel around the country talking about my book for the next three months or so. And I'm thinking of all the plane rides and train rides I'm going to take. And do I have to talk to the person next to me every single time? I don't know. That seems like a lot. <laughs> like When you're on book tour, all you just want to do is shut down and relax in between talking. So we all face these normal barriers. But I do think we can get better at sort of tamping down the efficiency mindset that some of us use to carry through every day of our life. And so, for example, if I'm pulling to the gas station, I, th I think to myself, oh, I've got 90 seconds while I'm pumping gas. I can get two emails done. That's just a horrible way to think. Like, I've got this productivity clock in my head. And if I think that way, then when I'm picking up my kids at school or, you know, hanging out with somebody, I'm going to still have that clock in my head. Of course, I'm not going to be lingerable. Of course, I'm going to want our relationship to be efficient. And so I've got to tamp down that efficiency and say, no, I'm going to stay with this right this person. And I've learned, you know, treat attention as an on-off switch, not a dimmer. And so it's going to be 100% or 0%. I'm not going to multitask you, another human being. And I've learned from our friend and Trinity Forms friend, Andy Crouch, to be a loud listener. And I mentioned Andy in the book, because when you talk to Andy, if people know him from the events he's been on here, he's, he's like, Pentecostal church. He's like, uh-huh. Yep. Yep. Preach. Yes. Amen. Amen. I agree. I agree. Amen. Amen. And I'm like, love talking to that guy. So I want to be a little more of that. 
But as you say, there are some people who are beyond the boundaries. So if you're an illuminator or wannabe, and somebody is persistently a diminisher, and it's just going to stereotype, ignore, and attack, well, there's not much you can do about that. And you can try to release a little vulnerability to see if they'll respond in kind. But, you know, I'm not naive enough to think that if I was in the room with members of Hamas, which I've been in those, those rooms, that somehow I should try to understand them and everything will be peaceful between us. Some people are just genocidal monsters and you got to protect yourself. But I do think most people, and I've been in Palestinian homes, there were, we may disagree profoundly about a bunch of stuff, but there's genuine graciousness and warmth in the home. Or Trump supporters, I'm not a big Donald Trump supporter, but I've had a zillion conversations with Trump supporters, some in my own family, that have been deep, meaningful, real great friendships. And sometimes there are certain subjects we won't talk about just to keep the friendship alive, but that's super easy to do. And if I meet a Trump supporter and I say, you know, what was, what was your best job ever? Like, what was the best job you ran? Suddenly they'll tell me a story. And if they tell me how they lost that job because it got shipped overseas or immigration or whatever, then suddenly I understand where their head is at vis-a-vis -vis Donald Trump. I, I may not agree with their voting choices, but I, it's a legitimate standpoint. Yeah. Uh, you also, and it was really one of the most, I think, kind of gripping and poignant parts of your work, describe the experience of trying to to see deeply, to connect with your best friend from childhood, Pete, who was was caught in uh, depression and the world that he inhabited seemed very difficult to uh, behold or, or understand. Um, how so many of us who are watching, you know, do have close friends or loved ones who at some point in their lives seem to be occupying an alternative reality that's very hard to understand. How do you learn to behold and see deeply someone who yeah. seems to be caught in, in that kind of despairing alternate reality? Yeah. Well, this is yet another skill that we're not taught. And I am a reasonably well-educated person. You think somewhere along the way, somebody would have taught me how do you sit with someone who's suffering from depression, but I didn't know. And so for the first 57 years of his life, Pete had this wonderful life of, he was an eye surgeon. He was a, had a wonderful wife, two great kids, lived up in Connecticut. We met when we were 11 and basically played basketball for 40 years of our lives together. And then Pete got hit with depression. And I didn't really understand back then what depression was. And this was 2019. And I since learned from one of our friends, Michael Gerson, Mike said that depression is a man, a malfunction in the instrument you use to perceive reality. So Pete was not seeing reality accurately. And he, he like Mike had these obsessive voices in his head, no one would miss if you're gone, you're worthless, you're dragging everybody down. And so that's the reality Pete was living with for three years. And in the beginning, I didn't know how to talk to him. And I wanted to say something that would help. And so the first mistake I made was I tried to give him ideas for how to snap out of depression. So I said, you know, you used to go on service trips to Vietnam, why don't you do that again? You found them so rewarding. And I learned later that telling giving somebody ideas about how to get out of depression is just a sign that you don't, you don't understand what depression is because it's not ideas they're lacking, it's energy. Then I made another mistake, which was positive reframing. I tried to remind him of all the wonderful things about his life. And that is negative too. That has a bad effect too, because it shows that he's not enjoying the things that are palpably enjoyable. So there must be something wrong with him. 
gradually over COVID, our phone calls, I learned just to be present, just to recognize the awfulness of the situation, be present, show I'm not going anywhere. And then I think if I had to do it again, I would I would first have sent more touches, like just a little text here and there, just say, I'm thinking of you, no response necessary. I'm just thinking of you. Then I, I may have said, you know, I'm, I admire your courage because you're still here. You're in a lot of pain. You've been in a lot of pain for three years and you're still here. I admire your courage. And then I've learned from Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning when he was counseling people who were contemplating suicide. He said, life has not stopped expect, expecting things of you. Life has not stopped expecting things of you. And that seems a little harsh to tell someone who's like contemplating. But Frankl says, no, they have to know they're here for a reason. And they, they have a lot of good they can do in the world. And later I read a, a quote. I was given a quote by a friend of mine, a pastor named Chris Davis, a, a quote from Thornton Wilder, the playwright. And he said, without your wound, where would your power be? It's your very low, your low voice trembles into the hearts of men because of the wounds you carry. In love service, only wounded soldiers can serve. So it was Pete, and for somebody who's suffering, it is their very suffering that gives them credibility to reach into the hearts of other sufferers and to sit with them and be a comfort to them. And so that's a power that comes from that strength. And I wish I'd reminded Pete of all these things. Having said that, I don't think there's anything ultimately I could have said that would have made a difference. He ended up succumbing to suicide about a year and a bit ago because the monster was just too big for him and it was going to be too big for us. It was just, it's a monster, this thing. So there's nothing I could have said that would have changed things, but uh, things I wish I'd said just to be a, a better presence along the way. Now, obviously the process of immersing yourself in all of this material, not just the research, but also the theologians, the philosophers, and the like, whose works you yeah, you summarize and th synthesize in essentially helping uh, others to better love and see our neighbors. How did it change you? I'd be interested if there's any practices or disciplines you've adopted or even just changes you see in your own practice of seeing others. I, well, I think I am a more open to people in stranger situations, but I hope I'm, I have conversations that are are deeper and better and more memorable for all involved. And I hope I re reflect back, I hope I cast what Iris Murat called a just and loving attention on people that I, I do come to revere each person as this soul of infinite value and dignity. And I hope I'm more emotionally open. I think I am. I, uh, I'll tell you two stories, one of which is in the book, one of which isn't. But the one in the book is involves me name dropping. But I've been interviewed by Oprah twice in my life in 2014 and 2019. And after the 2019 interview, she comes up to me and says, you know, I've rarely seen someone change so much in middle age. You, you were so emotionally blocked before. And so that was a good moment for me that I, I, you know, she should know she's Oprah. Like, so I, I'm making some progress as a human being. The other story is I was at a conference recently and we were at it a church and we, everyone was handed out a song sheet with lyrics of some love song. And we had to pick a stranger and sing the song into their eyes while gazing into their eyes of a stranger, this gappy love song. And if you had asked me to done that 10 years ago, my head would have exploded, but I did it. I was out there for the emotional openness. So I did it. And it took me like six months to recover, but still. So, but I, I, I think hopefully, especially if we got us guys, you soften in middle age and you, you get a little more emotionally open. So I hope I'm, I think I'm that way. 
David, that's great. And the last word is yours. Sure. First, I want to encourage people to join so they can get your daily, what what we're reading. But the, that daily email organizes my reading list every day. So I, I appreciate what the Trinity Forum does with that. So my book is meant to be practical. So I'll finish just with two practical tips. And this is how to be a better conversationalist tips. Uh, and one of them is don't be a topper. So if you tell me something you're having trouble with your teenage son, my instinct is to say, oh, I know exactly what you're going through. I'm having a trouble with my teenage son. And that seems like I'm just trying to relate to you. But really, I'm saying, I don't really care about your problem. Let me talk about mine. And so that's called topping. Don't be a topper. And then the final one, I don't know if this will work with a... So don't fear the pause. And so I read this from a book by Kate Murphy. And she says, if I'm talking to you, and there's a visual here, which is my arm sticking out. If I'm talking to you and I start my comment at the shoulder and I talk all over my fingertips, at what point have you stopped listening so you can think of what you're going to say in response? Usually people stop right about here. And so my advice is, let me talk to my fingertips. And then I have a friend who does this. He, he'll hold up his hand and he'll pause for three or four seconds as he tries to think of what's to say. And I always feel, wow, he's really listening to me hard if he's really pausing. You don't want to do it all the time if you're hanging around a bar. You want the conversation to be fast and fluid. But, but if it's a deep conversation, if something important, then don't fear the pause. Let me talk to my fingertips, pause, and then think of what to say. And that way you'll really, really hear me. David, thank you so much. This has been a real delight. Oh, thank you, Sheree. Always a pleasure to be with you. And thank you to all of you for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode in our series on navigating the challenges of modernity. Be sure to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations podcast to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're enjoying these, please leave us a review. Visit our website at ttf.org for more information and show notes from this episode, as well as resources such as our Trinity Forum readings and videos of our past events.